Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. You know, when I have a large project at home, sometimes it makes sense to do it by myself. At other times, I actually save money in the long term and have a much better solution if I use an expert. It's really not that much different with church planning. Church planners who focus on building their core team and actually planting the church and partner with portability experts like Portable Church Industries hit the ground running. Yes, you may have to raise more funds up front, but let me tell you something. If I could go back in a time machine and do one thing different in all the churches that I planted, I would go back and have invested that money in Portable Church and all of the super cool kit that they give you to make the volunteers and their lives much, much easier. Trust me, your volunteers will feel invested in, and they're going to give you more of what they got. And that time where people are setting up is going to be a time where it sets the atmosphere for you to thrive. If you're thinking about launching in the next six to 36 months, we encourage you to check them out at portablechurch.com. Hey, welcome back to Hardcore Church Planning. I say welcome back because today I've got on the show with me a guest who is a um, short-term listener and a uh, return guest, though, repeat guest, because I just interviewed him on the previous episode on discipleship, but he kind of busted out on me that he also teaches on spiritual warfare. That's actually one of his passions, one of his uh, specialities, and he actually has a book which has a rad title, Discipled Warriors. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Chuck Lawless. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Thanks, Peyton. All right. Well, good to have you back on here. So uh, this is a topic I'm super excited about. In fact, I've been chomping at the bit to get to the second half hour with you today so that we could do this because nobody talks about this. Um and it is such an important subject. Spiritual planning. Go. <laughs> if you want to know about Chuck, you can go back to the one on discipleship. We're not going to waste any time. We're jumping straight in, baby. So, uh, Dr. Lawless, tell us a little bit about um, spiritual warfare, what you've learned. I mean, you could say anything and you have me at, you know, hello. Well, I think I think you go all the way back to Genesis 3 and the fall, and then you particularly notice that God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And so it's God who says, I'm going to put conflict here. Mm. Uh, And that conflict ultimately leads to the cross, where Jesus defeats the enemy uh, via his death in God's unique and powerful way. But the other side of the cross where we all find ourselves, God still uses the conflict as part of his means to to conform us to the image of his son. And so I'd start out by saying too many people who study spiritual warfare go demon hunting and give the devil 
much more attention than the Bible does. Mm. When the scriptures teach much more clearly that the devil is always on God's leash. He he has been bound, he is being bound, and he will be bound. Uh, we just don't like the fact that God gives him a lot longer leash than 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 we might like. Yeah, there's uh, that passage in in uh, Revelation 12 where Satan's cast out of heaven, and it says he's all in a rage because he knows his time is short. He is a defeated enemy. Now he's that's mad. Right. He's ticked about it, and he's kicking off. You know, he's throwing a a, a fit. Yet he's already defeated, and I that's, love that's that you exactly. bring that up. And and we recognize that any time we set out to be people doing evangelism and making disciples, when we're, when we're doing the work of the Great Commission, here, here's what the scriptures tell us. Second Corinthians 4 says the people we're called to reach are blinded by the God of this age. Colossians 1 says that they are in the domain of darkness until God transfers them to the kingdom of his son. Ephesians 2 says they follow the prince of the power of the air. Second uh, Timothy 2 says they're caught in the in the devil's snare. And Acts 26, when Paul recites his testimony and Jesus calling him out, Jesus said that these folks were under the power of Satan and in darkness. And so mm. Paul's general description of lost people is they're, they're caught in the devil's kingdom. So if we choose to, if we choose to start evangelizing, we take the gospel to lost people, we're stepping into the enemy's territory. Right. And if we if we choose to be great commission people, we put a bullseye on our back in this in this battle. It it would be the equivalent of trying to rescue POWs right now from Afghanistan, the hill country in Afghanistan. If you go in there with that mission, it, it, they're not going to roll over and play nice. No, that's right. That's right. And that's and thus the warnings in the scriptures about spir- spiritual warfare are directed to believers. Because non-believers are, they're already in his trap. The, the reason the warnings are directed to us is that we're the single means God has given to get the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. And if the enemy can mow us down, then he at least temporarily moves some of the warriors off the scene. Right. Doesn't mean he wins, but he's going to fight back with everything that he has. Right. What are some of the the spiritual, uh, you know, maybe the manifestations of spiritual warfare? And I, I use that term non-charismatically, but what are some of the the things that you've noticed that are that are peculiar or specific to people engaged in gospel work? You know, here we're talking to church planners. Well, I don't know. It's just that it's. Uh... I don't know. It's specific to people engaged in gospel work as much as it is more pointed and heated up uh, because the enemy's strategies tend to be he's leading us into sin so that we lose the credibility of our message because our lifestyle doesn't back it up. Right. He always wants to infiltrate our churches with false teaching and, and he does that on the sly. He doesn't usually just move in with, with absolute heresy. Uh, he, he worms his way in and he also divides as he did with with adam and eve sin enters the garden adam turns on his wife this this woman you gave me uh, in, in chapter four genesis the brother turns on brother and so you put all those together you think about right what's what's the enemy doing in our corporate settings he wants false teaching to get in there he wants sin to invade the church he wants the church to be divided what what i do see a lot of peyton is the subtle scheme of the enemy 
I think he delights when we try to do gospel work in our own power. I don't think he's alarmed by us when we operate in our own strength on the basis of our own knowledge and live out our own giftedness and we seek the power of God on it only when we have to. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that's a that's a real danger because most most church planters I know who are doing church planting effectively, at least as as the world looks at it, uh, they're they're doing well because they're gifted, they're talented, they're they're committed, they want to succeed. But the real danger is that they will climb any mountain as far as they can climb it, and then seek God only when they can't climb anymore. And I and I think that's backwards. We, I think the enemy delights when we build something on our own because it doesn't have a whole lot of long term eternal significance. Yeah, one hundred percent agree with you. Um, the whole idea of depending upon the strength and power of the Holy Spirit um, is kind of something that Doctor Luke bends over backwards to let us know, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. Satan's afraid of the Holy Spirit. He's afraid of the Holy Spirit within us. But if, as you said, we're, we're rushing out like Samson with his hair cut off, That's right. he's going to jump us, right? It's just like, you know, mm. it, it might as well be me trying to take a crack shot at uh, Mike Tyson, right? It's not going right. to go well. Right. <laughs> or, or worse yet, he, he may jump us or he may leave us alone and let us go do it in our own power. Mm. So we, we feel like we're not under attack. Well, it may be we're not under attack because we're not a threat right then. Yeah. And so well, you we wrote we, a book called Di- no Sorry. Yeah, you wrote a book called Discipled Warriors. Unpack for us a little bit, because this is more about like becoming a congregation that that is going to be a threat to the enemy, to the kingdom of darkness. How does a church planner ensure that it, that his congregation is going to be operating on the strength of the Holy Spirit and become a threat to the enemy? Well, this this takes us back in, in some ways to our to our previous session because as I read I read Ephesians six and we're to wear the whole armor of God, wear the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes, the gospel of peace and the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, all of that covered in, in prayer. As, as I see that, when Paul tells us to do that in the context of Ephesians, it is about our position in Christ, that we, we have truth in us because the one who is truth lives in us. But we also have to live out that truth. We have to make choices to be people of integrity. And so I think as we, as we plant churches, as we grow churches, we've got to make sure that we're laying a strong theological foundation. There's that knowledge base but also very practical, relevant training that says, here's how I make those right choices. So, so we're teaching knowledge, but we're also modeling doing. And I think we have to teach people how to do that. If, if we're called to put on the whole arm of God and we, no one shows us how to put it on, baby believers can't do that unless somebody shows them how to put it on. And if we're not making disciples of those baby believers, we shouldn't be surprised when they fall in the battle. Right. So the million-dollar question then becomes, how do we put on the armor of God? What do people mean when they say that? How do we explain that to a new believer? Well, some people mean by that, I get up every morning and I just pray it on without even considering how I live the rest of the day. And I think that's a that's a, a wrong way of understanding it. I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think what Paul wants us to think about is is not get so much hung up on it's a belt and it's a breastplate and it's shoes. 
He wants us to learn how to be people of truth, how to be people who make righteous choices, how to be people who speak the gospel of peace, how to be people who know the the promises of God and and live those out in faith. And so I think what we have to teach people is we're not talking about some some secret means here. We're talking about fundamental basic Christian living and if we if we learn how to live that way, we'll live in victory. Right. Okay. So that's that's really good. So really it has to do with, with your position in Christ and how you're living out of that. So uh where Paul says like stand in you know the power of the Lord, stand in his might, right? Um, yes. Again, it's that borrowed strength. That's what armor is. Armor is a second skin because my skin is not strong enough. So I need an artificial skin. And in this case, he's saying God's strength. You're going to stand in God's strength. So it goes back to what you've already said. Um, so can you unpack a little bit for us what some of these are? And, and not to, not to, you know, if you want to take it another way, by all means, feel free, but I'm just kind of fascinated by your take on this. And, you know, because I think, I think you're right. It has to do with more with how we live minute to minute versus a token prayer we pray. Well, it is, it is both. And you use the word position. And I think that's right. It's, it's our position in Christ and our practice of living out of that position. In, in the context of Ephesians, it's very clearly there that the chapters one to three talk about who we are in Christ and our, our foundational theology. And chapters four to six tell us how do we live out our faith and our personal walk and our family and our church and our workplace. It's, it's all there. And so I, as I look, for example, at the belt of truth, well, my position in Christ is that the one who is truth, the way, the truth, and the life is the one who has saved me, is the one who indwells me. So that's my position. But because of my position, I must make choices to be a truthful person. It means I have to be the same person in private as I am in public, mm-hmm. that I that I make choices to be a man of integrity. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness, we know that our position is God gives us his righteousness. We don't muster this up. God gives us his righteousness. But I'm then called to make sure that I make righteous choices, that I live that out by saying no to sin and yes to God. And I, I follow Ephesians 5, and that is that I imitate God with all of my life. I lay aside my coarse jesting, my filthy talk. I, I get rid of those things in my life. And I and I walk righteously. Mm. And so I think all of that is is a is about our position and living it out appropriately. I think we have to teach people to understand their position and we have to model for people how they how they live it out. My my fear is this, Peyton, is that we we reach baby believers and we don't walk with them. We really don't disciple them. Consequently, they find themselves in a war that they don't even know exists. They get shot down, and then we wonder why they don't care anymore, when the truth is we sent them into the war unarmed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, when, when I came to faith, the the gentleman that led me to faith, what he wasn't aware of at the time was my family was very steeped in the occult, like seances and stuff like that. Nothing, mm. nothing weird like you know, Satanists or human sacrifices or stupid things. Nothing Harry Potter, just more seances and things like that. And, 
Um, so there was a lot of kickback when he started sharing the gospel with me, things started going bump in the night wow. for him. And, um, so he, he kind of approached me and said, what's going on, dude? Like I showed him, I go, Oh yeah. I go, yeah, my whole family's into this. My dad, my mom, you know, my, uh, this is a big deal for us. And he's like, okay, we, <laughs> we need to get rid of all, you know, and he, he was just, he was kind of freaked out. Like what in the heck? And, uh, so for me, it was very real. You know, I had grown up with supernatural experiences, which actually, um, it, it's strange that I didn't end up in a Pentecostal church, right? And it, huh. it, the, the reality is, um, this was the reason I was open to the gospel because I knew there was a supernatural realm. So that okay. was, for me, it was kind of a, a, you know, without getting weird, I, I don't tend to share my stories, but, uh, <laughs> they're not really for public consumption, but, sure. um, to this day, Things go bump in the night, you know, and, and I can kind of trace patterns. It's it's usually when I'm right on the cutting edge. I'm drawing extremely near to God. That's when stuff kicks off. Right. Right. And I and my experience is that that often happens uh, with the enemy rearing his head in recurrent temptation. Sometimes I'm I more often see it even in attacks on marriages. Uh, that you, you step out in faith, and the enemy who tried to destroy Adam and Eve's marriage continues to attack ours. So we right. we really do have to guard that. Mm. Yeah, so true, man. So I, I'm glad you brought up you know marriage. Um, a lot of uh, what we've learned to do over the years. I don't know what suggestions you have, but obviously pray, right? right. I mean, my wife and I pray that. I mean, it, it sounds so stupid to say, but the other thing is we go to counseling. We've gone to counseling for 20 years. Here's my qualifications for a counselor, usually an ex-minister, more charismatic than I am, and professionally licensed. Those three things have to be in place, and then I've hit a sweet spot. There's my train. Sorry about it. Good luck, <laughs> but I'm talking, so my train's got to wait. <laughs> All right. But but the reality is, you know, those things, and, and those each person kind of gets to know their own stride and what they need to do. And for us, if we're praying together, sometimes you pray together, things kick off even more, I'll be honest. But we know that if we don't pray, I can remember a time where our marriage was hanging literally by a thread, and that thread was prayer. And that we look back and think that's the only thing that got us through that season. Mm -hmm. Sorry mm -hmm. to say, but it's true. Yeah, and I, and I love your idea of of just continuing to be in counseling to to really ground your marriage. What's what strikes me in in Genesis two and three is that one moment this marriage is very God centered. Mm. They are naked and unashamed. The two have become one, and then the serpent gets involved, and it doesn't take long for that godly home to be distorted so that. Husband turns on wife and offspring are, are affected. Even, even the healthiest homes are susceptible to attack if we don't keep our guard up. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, w one of the things I want to ask you is what are, what are some of the other ways that you have seen, um, people come under spiritual warfare? For example, um, would you say times like I used to call it like a funk or like, it would just be kind of like a, a an oppression or a do you ever do you ever talk about those or 
Yeah, I do think there are times when we're we're walking with God, and so we look at our lives and we don't see uh, ongoing unrepentant sin in our lives. We're we're being faithful to the Word. Uh, we're not letting garbage in our in our minds. We're 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 fighting hard to be praying people, and st- and still there's this weightiness. And I'm and I'm hesitant to operate just on the basis of feeling, but. But it does seem to me, Peyton, that when you look at the rest of your life and you don't see places where you're just giving the enemy access, Mm. where you've closed the door, and yet there's this heaviness that you seemingly can't get out from under, it's it's this thorn that that Paul had, that Paul sought release from, and God said, no, I'm going to leave you there uh, because I'm going to teach you something in your weakness. I I think sometimes we sense that we're under that kind of attack. And, and here's what we have to do. We don't we don't run from it. We ask God, what do you want me to learn in the midst of this? Mm, okay, good. I like it. You know, um, one of the things that my wife has said, I'll, I'll share her thing. Um, it's better than sharing my thing. Um, but, you know, what, what she'll say often is she'll say, when all other doors are closed, there's her dreams. And there's times she'll get these horrific dreams. And so we've learned. See, there it is. He snuck up on me. That it time. is. I told you. <laughs> When he comes from that direction, you know, I can't always hear him. You hear how quiet he was, and then boom, couldn't even hear the wheels. Right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, what she would say at times is she says, because that can, that can be at times some of those dreams can be traumatic. Sometimes they can sow seeds of doubt or discord. Some of them can, can really be evil. And she'll say, you know, that, that's, you know, Keith Green used to say things like that. Um, you know, these are just, Things that happen. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to focus entirely. Like I want to kind of bring it back and, and talk about some of the ways to overcome, uh, spiritual warfare and some of the ways and, in, in, in places where we say, no, I have victory and I'm going to lean into that. But, um, is there anything else that you want to add to, to these dynamics? Yeah. I would, to your point about dreams, I, I think the enemy looks for any means by which he can attack us. I don't. I don't think that he is. He is omnipresent. I don't think he he can read our minds. Nope. Will he look for any means to bring fear to our lives, to distract us from the work of the gospel? Uh, absolutely, he will. To to challenge our faith, uh, he hates us. He hates us. There's there's nothing kind about him, and so he'll always look for any place to uh, move us away from the things of God. Right. So, uh, on that end, um, what, what are some of the ways that, that believers can overcome the enemy? You already talked about the armor of God. What are some other ways? Yeah, I think, I think we do need to go back and look at the entirety of the biblical teaching about spiritual warfare. And that is that the, the devil is under God's control. We don't always understand it all. We don't understand why God gives him permission to do things like when he destroyed everything Job had, other than Job and his, his wife, and he would have he would have destroyed them had God allowed uh, him to do that. We don't always get that, uh, but if if we lose the reality that God is ultimately in charge, we'll let the enemy frighten us into uh, inactivity. So I think we have to go back to that. A, a second thing we need to learn: God never designed us to fight these battles by ourselves. Uh, when when God said of Adam, "It's not good for the man to be alone," that's prior to the fall. And I don't think his point was that everybody is supposed to be married. I do think God was saying, I created all of you to need other people. Mm. And so 
if you're going to fight these battles, you need to fight them arm in arm, hand in hand. And anytime we fight the battles by ourselves, uh, we're asking for trouble. That means the local church matters. That means uh, somebody who pours himself into my life matters. That means my small group of people who rally around me and walk beside me, they matter. Uh, and we can't isolate ourselves in the battle or we will lose. We, we've got to recognize that relationships God gives us are, are one means by which we counter the enemy's attack. Right. So here's here's a question that um, uh, it's kind of a loaded one, I suppose, because, you know, there's probably tons of good stuff and probably tons of bad stuff on this topic. What are the chief resources? Obviously, you keep pointing back to the Bible. I think that's a good right. start. Right. Um, what you've got your book, Discipled Warriors. What are some other resources that you would say read this on spiritual warfare? I would say for just a basic understanding of spiritual warfare from a more scholarly perspective, but still practical, I would I would look at Clinton Arnold's book, Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare. Okay. And his questions are, what is spiritual warfare? That, that, in my estimation, is the strongest part of the book. He does answer the question, what can demons do to Christians? Uh, and, and he answers the question, what do we do about, about uh, territorial spirits, which is a, a whole different topic as well. But certainly that first chapter of what is spiritual warfare, as he looks at as warfare as part of our common struggle as Christians, I, th- I think that's a helpful resource. Uh, Scott Moreau, who's professor of of missions at the Billy Graham School at at Wheaton, uh, Billy Graham Center at Wheaton, he's written a number of things on spiritual warfare. Some that are that are book studies, some that are just Bible studies. Uh, he's very solid in looking at these issues, and any of his writings would be helpful. There's an old Puritan book by William Gurnall mm-hmm. called "The Christian in Complete Armor." Yeah. Uh, it is the original is massive, but it's now been uh, abridged in contemporary English. Uh, it's it's worth getting your hands on. Even the devotional book out of his writings is a, is a very helpful resource. Yeah, and I I would also point out that guys, when you when you do start reading about spiritual warfare, balance it with something else. I I've noticed whenever you know we 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 call the occult the occult for a reason. It means hidden. Satan mm-hmm. doesn't like to come into the light. He doesn't like you thinking right. about him. He doesn't like you exposing him. And Paul talks about this, you know. He likes to hide under the cover of darkness. So when you do come into this, guys, don't be surprised if things kick off a little more. You get that depression. Any book I've ever read on spiritual warfare, at a certain point, I go, whew, i got to put this down. And so I would say balance your reading. Yeah, and I, and I would agree. It usually is heavy reading and sometimes just stretching your worldview to the point of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So it's always good to read, balance it, read some stuff about God. Yeah. Just, just really focused on the characteristics of God. Read something on prayer, a God who communicates with us and listens to us. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that's valuable. Well, hey, our guest today has been Dr. Chuck Lawless. He is the author author of Discipled Warriors, and because he was once upon a time the professor and senior associate dean at the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Church Growth at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whew, that was a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> I need to ask you, Dr. Lawless, if you 
And young Billy Graham, by young Billy Graham, I mean, you know, 56-year-old Billy Graham, were to get in a physical fist fight, who would win? I could take Billy now, but young Billy Graham, he was, he was, <laughs> he was something. So he was? yeah, he, he took on the, the world. And so he was a he, big he, dude, right? I mean, he's yeah. not, he's not a small guy. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I, I, he could probably take me. Yeah. And he, he's got that gleam in his eye. Like, you know, he doesn't, Billy doesn't mess around when he's in the pulpit or when he's out of the pulpit. You know what I mean? He seems like he was a contender. You know, I, I saw Billy preach one of his last last uh, crusades in, in Louisville, and he pretty much had to be helped to the stage. But when he opened his Bible, it was incredible, the passion and the energy that suddenly came out of him. Uh, it was wow. it was quite fascinating. Wow. That is super cool, man. And now I am super jealous. See what you did? You brought hey, me. sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, again, uh, Dr. Lawless, thank you for being the guest today. Thank you. Enjoy being with you. Likewise, man. Well, hey, this has been Hardcore Church Planning. Thanks for listening. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.